Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to the IMD presentation of data on relapsed refractory DLBCL treated with DEX Survivac, Vodos Cyclophosphamide, and Tenbrolizumab, which will be combined with the presentation of IMD's third quarter results and highlights. At this time, all lines are in a lesson only mode. After each presentation, there will be a question and answer session. Instructions will be provided at that time in order to queue up for questions. If at any time during this event you need to speak to an operator, kindly press star followed by zero on your telephone keypad. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Pierre Labbé, Chief Financial Officer of IMV. Please go ahead, Mr. Labbé. Thank you, Julie. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Pierre Labbé and I'm CFO at IMV. I'm pleased to welcome you to our presentation on the biomarkers associated with OPSERT clinical responses in patients with relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and treated with IMV T-cell therapy in combination with Tetruda. This presentation will be followed by our third quarter 2020 results presentation. We have the pleasure today to be joined by Dr. Neil Bernstein, hematologist and affiliate scientist at the Sunnybrook Institute and principal investigator of the spiral study. Dr. Bernstein will be presenting findings outlined in the abstract and poster presentation made this week at the CITC conference. From IMV, you will also have Fred Orst, our CEO, John Schindler, our chief medical officer, Stefan Cizé, our VP Clinical Research, and our newly appointed Chief Business Officer, Andrew Hall. The call will be divided into two parts, and in the first part, we will present and explain the CT data, and it will be followed by a dedicated Q&A session. Afterwards, we will proceed with a review of our third quarter highlights that will also be followed by a Q&A session. Before we begin, I would like to remind you that except for historical information, this audio presentation and webcast contains forward-looking statements which reflects IMV's current expectations about future events. These forward-looking statements involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause IMV's actual results to differ materially from these statements. These risks and uncertainties include, but are not limited to our ability to access capital, the successful and timely completion of clinical trials, the receipt of all regulatory approvals, and other risks detailed from time to time in our ongoing quarterly filings and in our annual information form. The forward-looking statements made on this call are based on several assumptions, which may prove incorrect and they represent views only as at the date of this call and are presented for the purpose of assisting potential investors in understanding IMV's business and may not be appropriate for other purposes. IMV does not undertake to update forward-looking statements, whether written or oral, 
may be made from time to time by or on its behalf, except as required under applicable securities laws. Investors are cautioned not to rely on these forward-looking statements and are encouraged to read IMV's continuous disclosure documents, including its current annual information form, as well as its annual financial statements, which are available on CDAR and on NPR. The press release, the MDNA, the consolidated financial statement, the abstract and poster presentation referred to on this call are all posted on IMV's website at imvinc.com. If you wish to receive a copy of either of these documents, please do not hesitate to contact us. And finally, take note that we will take questions only from certified analysts. Doctors and other interested scientific parties are invited to listen to Dr. Berenstein's poster Q&A session through the CITSI web platform. The poster number is 356 and will be presented later today from 4.50 to 5.20 p.m. Eastern Time and also on Saturday at from 1 to 1.30 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Time. I will now turn the call over to Fred. Fred. Thank you, Pierre, and good morning, everyone. I hope you and your families are all doing well. Welcome to the first section of this call where Dr. Bernstein and Dr. Schindler will present the results of a biomarker analysis conducted in the spiral study in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We are extremely happy with these results. This was a, an important goal of our clinical development strategy as we believe that understanding of the mechanism of action and being able to precisely define the target population is the key for the success of late-stage clinical trials in oncology. PDL1 is a well-recognized biomarker. It's approved for multiple cancer indications. And we believe, <clears throat> excuse me, that this finding is really bringing us closer to an accelerated path to market in the LBCL. Before I turn the conference to Neil to present his key findings, I would really like to take this opportunity to congratulate him and his team at the Sunnybrook Institute for the great work and the commitment to the success of this study, which has already met its primary endpoint as we announced earlier this year. Without further delay, I will turn the conference over to him, but please take note that due to other commitments, Dr. Bernstein won't be able to stay for the question period. Neil? Well, thank you very much, Fred. Um, as the principal investigator of the SPIRAL study, it is my honor to present to you the poster uh, that is being presented this week during the SITSI annual meeting. Um, I'm starting off on slide five, uh, which uh, shows that relapsed and refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is an unmet medical need. Uh, CAR T-cells are promising, but this treatment is not easily accessible and cannot be considered for many patients because of its toxicity profile and because of the uh, comorbid illnesses of many of these patients. Novel approaches to control this clinical dilemma are required to fill this medical gap. Uh, next slide, please. Um, Single-agent checkpoint inhibitors have limited activity and have not been approved in the relapsed and refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma population. And uh, we have tested a novel combination immune therapy that includes DPX Survivac, a novel T-cell activating therapy that generates targeted immune responses against the surviving tumor-associated antigen, pembolizumab, a humanized monoclonal antibody checkpoint inhibitor binding to PD-1, 
and intermittent metronomic low-dose cyclophosphamide, an inhibitor of regulatory T-cells. Study treatment uh, in includes administering subcutaneous doses of DPX Survivac, 0.5 mil doses three weeks apart, then 0.1 mil doses every eight weeks. Subjects also received intermittent low-dose cyclophosphamide, 50 milligrams twice daily for seven days on and then seven days off as an immune modulator. Pembrolizumab was administered as 200 milligrams intravenously every three weeks. Tumor biopsies were obtained pre-treatment and once on treatment. Um, next slide, please. Subjects with relapsed and refractory and incurable uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma with surviving expression are eligible for participation in the study. The primary endpoint is to document uh, the objective response rate using modified Chesson criteria for the combination treatment, looking for a minimum objective response rate of 6 of 25 patients, or 25%. Secondary objectives and exploratory endpoints included T-cell response, uh, tumor immune cell infiltration, and biomarker identification. To date, 24 or 25 subjects have been enrolled, and the first 22 are described in this poster. The patient characteristics of the enrolled population is shown in this table. Six have transformed disease, seven refractory. They had a median of two previous treatments and four had previous autologous stem cell transplant. Next slide, please. As of the data cutoff for this abstract, 22 patients have been enrolled. 18 subjects with complete biomarker information have been included in the analysis for this presentation, 11 of whom are valuable based upon the per-protocol criteria, having received three doses of DPX Survivac, four doses of pembrolizumab, and having completed the first on-treatment imaging assessment. The spiral study has reached its primary endpoint, and we now have seven subjects that have achieved an objective response, three of them with a complete response and four with a partial response. In addition, three other subjects have achieved stable disease. In all subjects, that demonstrated clinical benefit, we observed minimal toxicity with the majority of grade one and grade two adverse events related to the site of injection of DPX Survivac. Whereas most non-responders with progressive disease progressed quickly and were not valuable for protocol. We evaluated diverse biomarkers and immune infiltrates to potentially identify patients who are most likely to respond to this novel immune therapy. Next slide, please. We have performed analysis of baseline tumor biopsies with 18 of 19 subjects having a baseline sample available for analysis. The bar graph shown here demonstrates the baseline expression of different tumor immune cell infiltrates, CD8 positive cells, CD4 positive cells, PDL1 positive cells, and FOXP3 uh, regulatory cells, categorized based upon their clinical response, the uh, lymphoma subtypes, and the L response uh, response status shown below the bar graph. In the figure, we can see the variation of pdl one expression in the pink or magenta bars uh, in subjects with various clinical responses and a clear observation of the increased presence of pdl one in patients with a complete or partial response shown left of the red vertical dashed lines. Below the bar graph, we show photomicrographs of the actual multiplex IHC slides. You can see greater intensity of PDL1 expression in the three samples on the right, all of which had clinical benefit or response 
from the treatment compared to the absent PDL1 expression seen than the patient on the left who had progressive disease. Next slide, please. Interestingly and importantly, there is a statistically significant uh, correlation documented between baseline PDL1 expression assessed by multiplex IHC and clinical response as demonstrated here. All analyzed subjects who achieved a complete response or partial response on study expressed PDL1 using a cutoff of greater than 10% by multiplex IHC analysis, making PDL1 a possible predictor of response using this combination immune therapy. Shown are results for PDL1 expression on CD20 B cells, figure A and B, and for PDL1 for all cells in the tumor microenvironment, uh, figure C and D. You can see the percent PDL1 positive cells or the percent PDL1 positive uh, uh, cells in total is significantly greater in patients with clinical response. Next slide, please. We have also demonstrated a statistically significant increase in surviving specific T-cell responses when compared to baseline response with the best on-treatment response. As highlighted in panel B, DPX survivac induced surviving specific T-cell responses are observed in 100% of subjects with a complete response and 75% of subjects with a partial response, supporting the mechanism of action of DPX survivac. Next slide, please. In conclusion, the combination immune therapy with DPX or Vivac, pembrolizumab, and modocyclophosphamide induced clinical response and disease control in patients with relapsed and refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Clinical responses are associated with a higher baseline expression of PDL1 and DPX or Vivac induced surviving specific T cell responses. The higher baseline expression of PDL1 in tumors support PDL1 as a potential predictor of response to this novel immunotherapy combination in relapsed and refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma. The association between PDL1 expression on B cells and induction of surviving specific T cell responses suggests a novel and important interactive immune mechanism of action. I'd like to thank you for your attention. I now turn the call over to Joanne. Thank you, Dr. Berenstein, for walking us through the data. I'd also like to extend my thanks to your great research staff at Sunnybrook, as well as the entire spiral team. In the next few minutes, I would like to provide some additional context to the data that Dr. Berenstein has so nicely presented and outline IMB's next steps in DLBCL. Next slide, please. To begin, this trial was initiated based on a hypothesis that there was a significant unmet need in this patient population and preliminary studies indicated that neither Keytruda nor DPX Survivac treatment alone would likely be sufficient to achieve the strong clinical responses urgently required in this population. As shown here, checkpoint inhibitors have limited activity in relapsed refractory DLBCL. We also know from these reported studies that there does not seem to be a correlation with PDL1 expression and response. In the spiral study, patients were chosen based on the expression of surviving within the tumors. Clinically, what we have seen is that more subjects have a significant clinical benefit to the combination treatment than we would expect, which is exactly what we had hypothesized. Next slide. Additionally, a key goal of our development program is to identify biomarkers that might help us to better understand how to optimize clinical activity. In this case, we've identified PDL1 as a potential biomarker response to the combination of DPX or 
low-dose cyclophosphamide and pembrolizumab. PD-L1 is a well-known biomarker that's used as companion diagnostic in multiple indications. When we focus on the subjects with PD-L1 positive tumors, we observe an objective response rate of 86%, which is in stark contrast to the lack of responses observed in the PD-L1 negative subset, suggesting that selecting subjects based on PD-L1 status might enrich for clinical responses to this immuno-oncology treatment regimen. Next slide, please. This figure has already been presented, but I think it's important to highlight it again. On the last slide, we show that clinical response is correlated with baseline levels of PDL1 and thus is supportive of the role of Keytruda as it has been demonstrated as a biomarker in other tumor types. However, the clinical responses also correlate to DBX surviveac induced surviving specific T cells, indicating that the induction of these cells is also a key component to the clinical responses that have been observed. On the next slide, we summarize in the top three rows of this table recently approved therapies in BLBCL and their associated response rates. These response rates range from 30 to 63%, but these agents also demonstrated high rates of serious adverse events, as well as discontinuations due to adverse events, hinting at the ongoing need for highly active, better tolerated therapies. For DPX Survivac cyclophosphamide and pembrolizumab, we have provided a range for objective response rates based on the larger intent-to-treat population with a response rate of 37%, as well as the PD-L1 positive subset of that population with an objective response rate of 86%. Also noteworthy is the generally well-tolerated safety profile, which we believe will be a significant asset, especially in this older, heavily treated population. Next slide, please. In summary, our data supports our hypothesis and our clinical path forward using this treatment combination. It's long been hypothesized by others that induction of tumor-specific T cells would act in concert with PD-1 inhibition, and it is, that has been shown in multiple preclinical models, including our own. Now we have early clinical data indicating that a T cell-specific therapy and PD-1 inhibition can deliver on clinical benefit in a patient population. With that in mind, we're planning an IMD-sponsored phase two study in relapsed refractory DLBCL. We intend to use one of the approved companion diagnostics to select subjects with higher levels of PDL1 expression in order to enrich for response. Based on our current data set, we anticipate that almost all of the subjects will be surviving positive, and around 30-40% will be classified as PDL1 positive. We intend to focus on this smaller patient subset. This study will be designed to try to take advantage of an accelerated approval path but we'd like to discuss such opportunities with the FDA. Therefore, we expect to have more details on the design in early 2021. In conclusion, we believe that DPX Survivac will be demonstrated to have clinically meaningful activity in combination with cyclophosphamide and pembrolizumab in a PDL1 positive population. And though our focus today has been on the promising spiral data, I'd also highlight that DPX Survivac has a novel mechanism of action with a unique target. It's well-tolerated safety profile, ease of care, and lack of anticipated drug interactions. Additional combinations are readily possible. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone for their attention, and I'm gonna turn the call over to Fred. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Neil and John. Uh, operator, we'll now take questions from the analyst. 
Thank you. At this time, if you'd like to ask a question, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And your first question comes from the line of Jim Urchena with Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, congrats on the data. Um, I guess a, question, a few questions for me. Just first, in terms of those patients that didn't achieve the three doses of DPX Survivac and the four doses of Pembro, um, you know, what was the distribution between, you know, patients that didn't get adequate uh, DPX Survivac versus adequate Pembro, and, and what was the reason that these patients uh, weren't able to complete the doses? John, you want to answer this one? Yeah. Hi, Jim. Thanks for the question. Um, so in general, I think as Neil had presented, most of those patients had a more rapidly progressive disease. And, you know, um, this was anticipated by the spiral team, which is why they were very careful about defining an evaluable population in this, you know, first exploratory study. Um, I think, uh, as you know, with the CAR-T therapies, bridging therapies also, often used for the very rapid progressive disease. But I'd also highlight here that with those subjects that we've now found to be PDL1 positive, um, it obviously controlled the disease quite um, readily. And there's where we're seeing, you know, that high positive rate of response. And so that sort of leads into my second question. And when you talk to FDA, would you bring up the topic of, of having a bridging um, therapy before initiating DPX Survivac or, or some way to handle the rapid progressors, or would you, would you screen those patients out or perhaps deal with it with um, less advanced patients with less prior treatments? Well, great question, and those are all the things that we are thinking about now as we're putting that design together. So we will have that. We do plan to have that conversation with FDA. And then just one final question, um, what, what's the go-forward plan with Merck and, and um, getting supply locked up for a pivotal or maybe getting more than that in terms of their contribution? Have you shared the results with them and any, any sense of where that relationship might go? Uh, sure, Jim. We, um, you know, obviously, uh, as we are planning to uh, uh, um, proposal design to the AVA very soon. You know, we 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 had to anticipate that and 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 have started. You know, uh, some time ago discussions with Merck. So we're quite advanced into those discussions and we'll update uh, you know the market when when we reach a point where we can talk about it. Terrific. Well, uh, congrats again on the data. Yeah, thank you. And your next question comes from line of Tom Schrader with BTIG. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, it's just fascinating data. It's a, <laughs> a lot of fun to think about. As you think of this, uh, and I guess this is for Dr. Berenstein, as you think about this response, do you think PDL1 is a marker for, the, for tumors where there's time for DPX survivant to work, or is it part of the mechanism? Is, is there any data to tease that out? Hi, Tom. Uh, uh, sorry, Dr. Bernstein, I had another commitment at CT and couldn't oh, stay for the okay. question. Uh, but I, I will, I'll stop and, and, you know, we'll invite Johan to uh, uh, summarize, you know, the discussion we had with him on, on you know, uh, this, this, you know, uh, very positive but, but also, you know, fascinating and, and kind of surprising results, results that we have based on, you know, the literature that is out there on checkpoint inhibitors where they didn't find really any strong correlation with, uh, 
um, you know, expression of PDL1. Um, you know, if you look at the checkpoint inhibitors, you know, globally in different indications, uh, I think it is about, you know, the, uh, the median level of response in PDL1 positive patient is 30 to 40 percent. So it's not like PDL1 is an absolute biomarker, even though it's, it's the target. Uh, it's, it's certainly a very good biomarker to enrich the responses, but there is still a, a significant number of patients that are PDL1 positive, but they're not responding. So there, there's something missing here. And what we believe that is missing, like Joan was highlighting, is that the T cells are also required, not only, you know, PDL1 inhibition, but you, you actually need the T cells. And in some patients, uh, for some reasons, um, T cells are not always there. And, and by generating those T cells, those surviving specific T cells, we, we overcome that limitation and make PDL1 um, you know, bring those PD-1 patients in the categories of patients that have both, you know, PD-1 inhibition and T-cells, so they can see responses. Um, you know, that being said, this is definitely something we want to dig out more because we believe that, you know, um, there's an opportunity here, you know, with, with, with a, a, a better understanding of what's really happening to, to uh, um, you know, bring the combination of T-cell with checkpoint to another level in terms of understanding, you know, where it should be applied, what are the best patients and the best indications. So we, we have a plan to really go deeper and deeper on, on you know, the explanation of what's happening. Joanna, I don't know if uh, you want to add something. Uh, thanks, Fred. I, I think you touched upon the key point. It's, um, we're continuing to look at this data set to better understand it and to dig deeper into that. And, and that would definitely be our plan moving forward to continue to better understand the mechanistic rationale behind this. It's, but as you said, it's really very intriguing and it's obviously um, showing a great deal of clinical benefit in this subset of patients. Okay, if I could ask one quick follow-up. Uh, so there are, are some responses with just PD-1 and DLBCL. Do, do you find your responses are slower to develop because you have the 10 days to re-educate the immune system, or is that is there just not enough data to make that differentiation yet? Well, I think um, we, what we were expecting, um, and as you know, you know, you, we are paying a lot of a lot of attention actually to the to the pharmacokinetic. Um, yeah. we, be, we believe it's an important factor that has not been, you know, uh, always studied in, in, in previous uh, clinical trials with, you know, cancer vaccines and, and, and equivalent technology. So we, we really believe it's an important factor and, and we pay a lot of attention to that. Our hypothesis, you know, um, when we went into the LBCL was that in blood cancer, um, the pharmacokinetic could be slightly different than what it is um, from solid tumors. Just because, you know, not only the time to generate the T cells, but as you know, you know, to reach out, you know, the tumor bed and, and go through the tumor microenvironment and get to those tumor cells. Plus, you know, simply the distribution of the tumors are, are not in the blood, so it's a bit different. So we were expecting that in the LBCL, you know, we're hoping actually that the immunotherapy would, would, would show a faster uh, uh, response pattern, and, and we are seeing it. If you look, you know, ovarian versus DLBCL, you know, we, we <clears throat> most of the responses, most of the um, tumor shrinkages, you know, uh, are really happening early, 
uh, on the study for the patients that you know make it to the first scan, and, and you know why in, in ovarian you know it could it could take you know six months even more sometimes. So there is really a, a, a difference. Nonetheless, all that being said, I, I think you know the it was a challenge. We we knew from the beginning that the LBCL is a very fast progressive disease. So and we knew that CARTIs were using bridging chemotherapy. So the question that we had was, you know, how would be able to, you know, incorporate that in, um, in, you know, in developing a target population for the LBCL. Uh, and it, it, it looks like, you know, PDL1 is a marker. Is it a marker because they are slowly progressing or is it just, it, it makes the product, you know, act faster on the tumor? I think those are questions we uh, will, will try to answer. All right, fantastic. Thank you for answering some long-winded questions. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. And your next question comes from the line of Ted Pentas with Piper Sandler. Please go ahead. Good morning, and thank you very much for the data update. Really interesting. I wanted to try to get a sense for what next steps are and really how this could be applied in the real world also, just kind of wondering if maybe even we get to a point where a fast progressor would maybe be someone who would move on to alternative therapy, but just trying to get a sense for how this would be applied real world. And again, congrats on the data. Thanks, Ed. Um, so clearly we, you know, like I said at the beginning, you know, we, we are very happy with the results because we believe it, it gives us uh, a potential first path to market for, for this technology. As you know, we have a platform. Um, I won't go back into the details of the mechanism of action that we have, but it's a new mechanism of action. Uh, and in our business plan, you know, we really want to get, you know, first approval to validate the platform and, and then, you know, use that as a foundation to really expand. So this is a top priority for us. So in terms of next step, you know, we want to uh, um, you know, design this trial, like Joan was saying, that uh, we, we hope, you know, will be designed in a way that could support um, uh, an accelerated approval. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, precedent, recent precedent in the LBCL, so we think it's, it's an achievable goal. So we'll do that, you know, as fast as we can. When we have, you know, feedback from the ADA and we have an agreement with them uh, in the first quarter of 21, we um, will report, you know, back on the on, on the design of the trial, and I think it's going to give a lot of clarity uh, for the company on, on on this path to market. You know, uh, the the size of the trial, the design, what's going to be the, the primary and secondary endpoints, um, and and you know, really, it's going to be a, a, an important focus, you know, going forward to uh, find ways to um, make sure we can enroll patients quickly and get to the endpoint, you know, again as fast as we can. I think that all makes a lot of sense. And again, the, you know, relative ease and safety of this um, regimen really makes a lot of sense. One last quick one, if I may, and this may be obvious, but what are the implications for the solid tumor basket study? And I have to imagine that you're looking at this there as well. Have you seen any correlation into solid tumor things? It's a good question. Uh, I will repeat, you know, what, I, what we said earlier, you know, this is, this is pretty, you know, uh, recent data. So, um, uh, yeah, for sure, you know, this, this is something that we believe has implication beyond the LBCL. Um, and how, you know, what we are 
you know, finding in, in the blood cancer will translate into a solid tumor and, and what, you know, differences, you know, might be there. This is something, you know, we are uh, working on uh, to look at, you know, what, what kind of learning we can have um, and what implication it has for the, for the basket trial. Great, excellent. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Fred. And your next question comes from the line of David Novak with Freeman James. Please go ahead. Good morning, and thanks for taking my questions. Uh, I'll echo everybody else, really interesting data here, and, and we look forward to seeing how this plays out in a future prospective trial. Um, I, I guess just on the current spiral study, a two-parter question for you. Um, we came across a study published in JCO, which suggests that DLBCL patients with PDL1 gene amplification seems to actually respond fairly good to PD1, specifically Opdivo uh, monotherapy, with an ORR of 36% in a relatively larger sample set. And I guess based on, on this, Merck is currently running its own phase two evaluating Pembro monotherapy in PDL1 amplified DLBCL patients. So, um, you know, looking at your data and seeing how the analysis here is post hoc and only includes a fairly small seven patients in the PDL1 positive cohort, what gives you guys the confidence that the result you're seeing here isn't entirely related to Pembro alone? And further, are you at all concerned with the lack of activity seen in the PDL1 negative cohort, which I guess some could potentially interpret to suggest that DPX or VIVAC may not be conferring uh, benefit by itself? Thanks, David. Uh, <clears throat> just as a reminder, it's, it's the study is, is done in collaboration with Merck. So uh, we are not, you know, making decisions in our, uh, alone on the interpretation of the results. And, uh, you know, obviously Merck has a lot more information um, than, than what is published and, and that we have access to in terms of PDA1 correlation in the LBCL. And um, so we, we are very confident that, you know, the, the high level of responses that we have uh, combined to the fact that there are no responses, you know, uh, without PDA1 um, is statistically significant and different from what they had. Uh, seen and, and, and what their plans are currently. Um, on the, um, the PDL1 negative um, non responders, um, you know, we, we, there's a lot of, you know, science around um, immune evasion and immune escape, uh, and there's been a lot of, you know, studies around those things. And, and, and you know, Things like MHC class one uh, been extensively described mutation in the LBCL. There are there are a number of patients that are um, that have a, a, an immune condition in the tumor that makes immunotherapy you know impossible to work with, and um, and so the results that we have are not you know surprising at all. Um, PDL1 is a biomarker. Um, not only for you know um, checkpoint inhibitors, but it's 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 the most important checkpoint in, uh, inhibitor of our immune system, generally speaking. Uh, it's it's a marker of 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 an immune um, activity, and uh, it's not only um, it's it's not always only a question of of genomic alteration in the PDL1 receptor, but there's also uh, actually in the LBCL. 
um, there are more patients that have PD-1 overexpression coming from, from inf inflammatory condition in the tumor than from alteration because the level of alteration in the LBCL is, is very low. If you have uh, copy gain or amplification, it's, it's a very small subset of patients that have that, but there's, all, there's another um, important percentage of those patients that do have uh, overexpression uh, coming from an inflammatory status. And, and you know, so, so again, you know, we, we, you know, we are not looking at this data uh, just IMV, but, but, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a partner um, working on this with us uh, that, that, you know, have a lot of information around PDL1 and the interpretation of the results. I don't know, Joanne, if you want to add something on this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for the question. <clears throat> I think I, I just want to also highlight you know, we do see the DPX survivac induced uh, surviving specific T cells. So we definitely do believe that DPX survivac is bringing that added effect, which is what we believe is changing, you know, the results that have been seen previously in terms of the PDL1 overexpression as compared to the gene amplification that's observed in DLBCL. So they're seems to be something that is happening by providing these two therapies together. So I, I, I think that's why we have confidence in this data set. Um, we, we've identified a population of patients that, that respond quite well, and it seems to involve um, the individual components are each contributing to that response. Great. Thank you very much, folks. I'll hop back in the queue. And your next question comes to mind with Joseph Panginis with HC Wainwright. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, guys. This is uh, actually Emanuela calling for Joe. Um, well, congratulations on the results. These are very exciting. Um, I guess you answered partially to one of my questions, but um, I wonder if you can uh, tell us a little bit uh, more about um, those patients that are uh, uh, PDL1 positive, uh, um, but you don't see, uh, you seem to have uh, um, surviving specific T cells, but you don't see responses. Uh, I was wondering, is there a threshold that you identified or you're looking to identify for seeing responses? Joan, you want to answer this one? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Fred. Um, it, so I, I just wanted to clarify the question. Are you referring to individual patients who might have had uh, the T cell response and didn't see a, yeah, a response, yeah. a clinical response? And didn't ah, see a okay. clinical response. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I was answering the right question. Um, I, I think in those cases, what we do know, you know, there are other factors that are involved in response. So, um, we do see that response, um, but we need to better understand in that case why there might be some resistance. So that's ongoing work that we, we are doing, whether it be looking at, you know, P, PMBCs or the um, PBMCs, sorry, or the tumor biopsies. So ongoing research on that aspect of the equation. 
Got it. And uh, do you think uh, there is a, a threshold uh, you have to see of surviving specific T cells in order to be able to see clinical responses? Yeah, that that one is, to me, you know, sort of a little bit of a harder research question because this is one point in time, right, that we take those samples. So um, it would be very hard, I think, to dive into that, but it is certainly something we will look at. I just um, believe because, you know, you only take those samples at certain time points, it will be harder to necessarily see that. Got it. And uh, also another question about the, the PDL1 expression. So you uh, also reported that there is a high variability in the literature regarding the reported PDL1 expression in the LBCL. And this is possibly due to the variabilities in the clones that are used for detection. So in, in your population and with your antibody, you have a positivity of around 39, 40%. I was wondering if you have tested other antibodies. Um, there is also a companion diagnostic specific for Crituda. And uh, are you planning to use this uh, clone uh, moving forward? So, so yes, we are going to be looking at that so that we can do that bridging for ourselves. Okay, so you, uh, just so I understand correctly, you are planning to use the one, the, the antibody you have been using so far or uh, the companion diagnostic for Ketu? No, um, sorry, let me clarify. We, we plan yes. on looking at, at, at both. So we anticipate that we'll move forward with one of the companion diagnostics that are, is already out there. Um, so oh, we will okay. um, look to compare the two so that we have a better understanding of how to choose that cut off and threshold. Got it. Thank you very much. And there are no further questions at this time. Thank you, uh, operator. We'll now continue with a review of our Q3 financial results and other ongoing clinical activities. Before I, I continue, I, would, I first would like to welcome to IMB two new members who through their experience and network will surely add tremendous value to our existing, existing team. At the board level, I'll start by welcoming Michael Bailey, who currently serves as President and Chief Executive Officer at Aveo Oncology, another NASDAQ-listed company seeking to advance targeted medicines for oncology and other medical needs. Michael brings more than 20 years of experience in the industry, including business development, product launch, sales, and strategic planning. And I also welcome to IMD's management team, Andrew Hall, who will act as a new chief business officer and be responsible for all business development and commercial initiatives for IMD's pipeline. Andrew joins us with more than 20 years of executive experience in biopharma and life sciences. His career has been focused on corporate and portfolio strategy, business development, and commercial operations with industry leaders such as Celgene, Merck, Sharing Pro, and Bristol Myers Squibb. Since we already covered the LBCL extensively in the first portion of the call, I will only review our other recent corporate milestones. But uh, let me start first with our phase two, the side one study in advanced ovarian cancer. We will be presenting timeline data in a KOL event scheduled for December 3rd. We'll shortly issue a press release providing the details and you will be able to register for the webcast through HIMD's website. 
With respect to the development of our COVID-19 vaccine candidate, we, we continue to make progress to our plan to initiate a combined phase one, two clinical trial in Canada by the end of the year. And we have so far secured up to $10 million to, food, to fund sorry, the, the entire program and development efforts. And we've also uh, applied for other non-dilutive funding requests uh, to uh, continue to be funded for, for um, the further clinical development that we anticipate for this vaccine. On the manufacturing front, we've entered a collaboration with a global partner and initiated transfer and scale-up activities. And this collaboration has the potential to bring two additional produ production sites on top of what we have. Uh, with capacity to produce several hundred million doses of TPX COVID-19. In, in the context of recent advancement and, and the global landscape um, in COVID-19 vaccines, we uh, continue to believe our approach is highly differentiated and has the potential to improve the duration of protection and protection in the elderly and other more vulnerable populations. Finally, on our phase two basket trial, in multiple advanced metastatic solid tumors. As of October 30th, we, um, we had enrolled a total of 106 patients out of the plan 184, um, and that's across all the five indications. And we have uh, different, uh, 19 different clinical sites in, in Canada, in the US. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has continued to impact, impact the speed of, of enrollment and we, we now project, you know, reporting the results in Q1 2021. On a, a final note, as a result of recent financial initiatives, we finished the quarter in a very strong financial position, which Pierre will further expand on later on the call. We are grateful for the extraordinary work and commitment of our employees and the continued support of our shareholders and partners. We, we look forward working closely with them, with them as we continue to deliver on our great opportunities. And this concludes my comments. I will now turn the conference over to Pierre for a review of our financials. Thank you, Fred. Uh, as a reminder, all the numbers I will be discussing are in Canadian dollars. So as of September 30th, 2020, uh, IV had cash and cash equivalent of $54.7 million and a working cap of $55.9 million. It is the best cash position the company has ever had. So uh, it compares to $14.1 million of cash at the end of uh, 2019 and a working cap at that time of $13.2 million. The increase in cash since uh, the end of June is mainly explained by the gross proceeds of 24.5 million US or 33.2 million Canadian from the at-the-market facility and also by the exercise of warrants for 2.3 million. So uh, based on our current plan, uh, we expect that the current cash position will be sufficient on the operation for more than the next 12 months. And uh, for the third quarter, we incurred a net and comprehensive loss of 8.3 million or 13 cents per share, which compares to a net loss and comprehensive loss of 7.9 million or 16 cents per share for the quarter ended September 30th, 2019. This is mainly explained by uh, the $889,000 increase in R&D expenses for the quarter ended September.
September 30, 2020, compared to 2019. The increase in R&D expenses reflects costs for preclinical development for the EPX COVID-19 vaccine candidate, which is offset by an increase in government assistance towards the project. To a lesser extent, the increase in R&D costs is also attributable to higher personal costs due to an increase in, in net count. Uh, the increase in R&D expenses was partly offset by a decrease in travel and DPX range preclinical development costs, as well as costs related to the decide one trial in patients with advanced recurrent ovarian cancer. The GNA expenses increased by 1.1 million for the quarter in the September 30th, 2020, compared to 2019, and the increase is mostly explained by higher insurance premiums. And for the first nine months of the, uh, 2020, uh, our cash burn rate, which is defined as the net loss for the period adjusted for operations not involving cash, was $23.6 million. So as of November 11, 2020, 67.1 million shares were issued, and a total of 4.5 million stock options, the issues and warrants were outstanding. Uh, finally, Please note that our uh, unaudited uh, financial statement for the three and nine months period ended uh, September 30th, 2020, and the related MDNA are available on CDAR and on NPR. Thanks for your attention, and I will now turn the call back over to Fred for his closing comments before the Q&A session. Thank you, Pierre. As you can appreciate, we've recently made significant progress validating our platform, advancing our clinical assets, and strengthening our balance sheet. We are especially excited. We have found a pot, uh, potential predictive biomarker associated with a very high level of clinical efficacy in patients with relapse refractory DLBCL. We believe uh, our approach to the treatment provides superior advantages with respect to efficacy tolerability, toxicity profile, and cost and ease of, of patient care in this disease. It could also address an important and medical need for patients who have failed or are ineligible to therapy treatments. With respect to other clinical programs in oncology, we are looking forward to providing top-line data from a phase two monotherapy in this stage recurrent ovarian cancer next December 3rd, and about our ongoing basket trial with Merck in the first quarter of 2021. Before the end of the year, we also expect to initiate our phase one two clinical trial for our vaccine candidates against COVID-19. As we, we continue making progress in, in our quest to deliver a new class of immunotherapy with improved outcomes for patients, we are grateful for the continued support of all stakeholders, partners, shareholders, and employees. And thank you for your attention. Operator, we are now ready to take questions. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And your first question comes from the line of Jim Birchenoff with Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi, guys. Thanks for taking the follow-up question. So uh, I guess a few on DPX COVID-19 on, on the vaccine uh, for COVID-19. Um, could you maybe give us an update on where you're at with publishing preclinical data, you know, when you'll have a complete preclinical data set, including um, challenge study, and when we might all see that data. Um, and then I guess the, the second part is just, you know, what's gating at this point to starting, you know, the phase one, two, and is it, you know, further discussions with Health Canada, and um, I guess what's, what's 
your level of insight into how timely that process will be. Thank you, Jim. Um, so, so to answer the last part of your question, you know, we, we are just uh, completing the, the two studies that are required in Canada to initiate uh, any clinical trial for, for, for COVID-19 vaccine, which are the typical studies that you would anticipate to have to complete for the development of a vaccine, which are toxic, to toxicology studies and a challenge study. Um, like we, uh, we said in an earlier release, we, we, we started those studies, you know, back in August, so we are very close to be completing those studies when we have all the documentation and the results will be to uh, uh, complete the package that, that we have with Health Canada and, and uh, hopefully, you know, get a, a quick approval and, and then initiate the, the, the clinical study. Um, we, um, you know, as we'll be doing that, we'll also um, uh, be completing, you know, the the publication that of, of the preclinical results, including the, the results of, of the challenge study and toxicology study uh, as part of, of the publication of, of what led the development of, of this vaccine into a, into a clinical trial. And, and so, Fred, do you um, request a formal meeting, uh, presumably virtually, but is no, there a formal meeting in no, Canada? No, no, it's, it's really been, uh, I have to say, you know, the bar is maybe higher in Canada, but it's been a very uh, a cooperative process with them. It's, uh, it's a rolling process, really, uh, an ongoing discussions on, on the requirements. And uh, so it's a bit less formal than, I would say, a usual type of, of you know, uh, uh, IND or CTA, where we, we are in constant discussion um, and, and, you know, completing the file as we go. So there is no uh, uh, formal meeting before we can start just, just completing the file. And then just um, maybe obvious, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on the Pfizer-BioNTech data, the 90%, you know, at least preliminary efficacy, a 90% uh, reduction in, in risk of infection seems, uh, you know, quite impressive. Um, yeah. How do you view that in terms of implications for, for you guys? Would that ultimately help you size a smaller study on assuming a similar effect size? Does that create a barrier uh, for you guys? How, how do you think about that? Um, I, I don't think it creates a barrier with the information that's available at that stage. Uh, so one thing, I, I think one thing that's very encouraging, that was a, a big question in my mind, is, is are the antibody levels in the blood a good correlate for protection? I think from what we are seeing from Pfizer, even though it's, it's interim data, it, it, it seems to indicate that yes. You know, every vaccine in the world that's in development, you know, can can rely on that. So I think it is going to simplify, in a way, uh, um, the clinical development of, of the other vaccines. Um, what what we are really, you know, focusing on is because that's you know, the the fundamental value of of this new technology that we have is you know, uh, prolonging you know the exposure of the antigen to the immune system, and, and what this does what we have demonstrated with RSV is that it's, it's this, this uh, prolonged ex exposition is closer to a natural infection and, and provide you um, a, a protection that could be much longer than what you have when you have a short, you know, exposure. So we really, you know, focusing the clinical development on repeating the same data set that we generated in RSV where we have more than one year 
of peak antibody levels in the blood of patients. Uh, and, you know, I honestly, I still yet to see another publication that, that's even close to that in terms of antibody levels in the blood. And, you know, I, we still strongly believe that if we repeat, you know, that data set, that the vaccine, um, that this vaccine, you know, will be uniquely positioned in terms of duration of protection, but the correlate of that is also the fact that, you know, if you have a stronger and longer exposition, you can also improve the protection in the elderly, uh, in patients with comorbidities, uh, even in patients with cancer, for example, where, where we have a lot of data on, on the ability of the technology to generate strong immune responses. So, you know, we, we are staying focused on the value of what we do, the differentiation of what we do, I would say independently at this stage of, you know, what the others are doing. When they, they publish, you know, the full data set and we can take a look at the duration uh, because we don't have any idea of the duration yet. Uh, I think that's where we're going to be, uh, uh, you know, digging into this to, you know, maybe think of, of uh, things we couldn't do in our home clinical trials to, to highlight the differences. So it was a very good answer. No, no, that, that's a very fulsome answer. Thanks, Fred. Thank you. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, press star one on your telephone keypad. And your next question comes from, from the line of Eduardo Garcia with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. Thank you for taking my question. Um, yeah, I just wanted to have an idea how the recruiting process evolving. Um, do you see like any improvement, um, in particular for basket trial? Um, well, it, it has been, you know, uh, quite challenging uh, to, to, to project, you know, um, the, the enrollment just because, you know, over the summer there was, you know, I think we all have, you know, for, for, for a moment, you know, uh, hope that, you know, COVID-19 would, you know, would not, you know, I mean, there was an expectation that there might be a second wave, but, uh, you know, the level of the second wave in the U.S., uh, as you are all aware, you know, I think it, it's way beyond, uh, in any way, it's way beyond what we were expecting. So, you know, the impact on, on the clinical side uh, is, is quite significant. Uh, it's, you know, on the specific, you know, uh, site, it could be different from one site to, to the other, but generally speaking, um, you know, uh, some hospitals are, are very busy dealing with um, the influx of, of patients. So this is something we, you know, we have to deal with um, you know, there's a lot of things that, um, and we've, we've, we've reported that before, that we, we've put in place to make sure we could keep, you know, the, the full, you know, quality of the data set. Uh, very important for us. You know, we want to make sure that when we reach, you know, conclusion on the trial, you know, there's nothing that, uh, um, you know, was not uh, done by the book because of the situation. Uh, so we, we've put in place a lot of, of, of ways to, uh, to do a lot of the, you know, the, the quality checks and, and all of that, you know, remotely, um, which, you know, it's really the focus for us at this point. Okay, thank you for, for your answer. And building on that, um, given all these headwinds faced for data collection and verification, do you expect, like, to redo any work? Uh, do you think the data integrity has been impacted at all? No, no, really. Uh, you know, the, this is where we you know, and thanks to, to, to our clinical team, they, they are doing an amazing job. I, I think, you know, I think that's the most important part. You know, you want, you know, to, to 
enrollment to be as fast as as you know as possible of course but but you know nothing uh it should not be at the cost of of you know potentially uh creating a problem with the integrity of the data so so again everything we've we've put in place in the company was prim primarily uh, focused on making sure we can maintain that level of quality and integrity of the of the, of the clinical data across our clinical trials okay perfect and one one more question um is is there going to be like any hold up uh, with the data uh, in terms of like with health canada uh, health canada will allow to release the information right away or how, how is that process going to be you mean related to COVID-19, to the COVID-19 vaccine? Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, regarding the, uh, the COVID-19 data. Are you talking about the preclinical data or the, the clinical data? Uh, the the preclinical. No, no, uh, you know, they, they don't, you know, no. There is no reason for them to do that, so it's really uh, for us to, to uh, you know, get, um, you know, the final complete results from, from those two studies and, 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 and finalize the, the paper and, and submit it. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. And there are no further questions at this time. I will turn the call back over to the presenters. Thank you. Well, I just uh, thank you all again for your time this morning. All the good questions, really appreciate it and uh, wish you uh, uh, a good day. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.